Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, um, Bible.org is a go-to website that, for me, if you want solid, best I know, pretty much, pretty much good stuff all the way through at Bible.org. So you go to Psalm 73 on Bible.org, and Bob Deffenbach is a pastor. He writes a lot there. He's a Dallas graduate. So he's got a long uh, study, a message, actually, on Psalm 73. But here's how he introduces it. He said, uh, um, before I started studying for Psalm 73 to preach it, a friend of mine from our church called me up early in the early hours of the morning, and here's what he said. Bob, I hate to bother you so early in the morning, but... My wife is laying here in bed beside me, and she's dead. She was 28 years old. She's dead. And that's, then he got into, why do God's people die young even like that? What's going on here? Why did God allow that to happen? And that's what we're talking about uh, in Psalm 73. Uh, bad things happen to God's people. Good things happen to God's enemies. There, chew on that for a while. Good things happen to God's enemies. Bad things happen to God's people. Uh, next week, Bo is going to be teaching us here. Uh, also, the Schindelbergers are going to share a little bit about their trial of faith that many of you know they went through a while back. So uh, don't miss it. Make sure you come. Uh, let's talk about Psalm 73 here. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says the 73rd Psalm deals with a problem. I think I have this on your handout with a problem that has often perplexed and discouraged God's people. It's a double problem. Why should the godly frequently have to suffer, especially in view of the fact that the ungodly frequently appear to be most prosperous? The psalmist relates his own experience, exposes his soul to our gaze in a most dramatic manner, and leads us step by step from near despair to final triumph and assurance. If you have a Bible or you have uh, something to read along with, I'm going to read the whole, the whole psalm here this morning. So just follow along in your Bible, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Pure meaning to those who are committed to pleasing God by, their, by the grace of God. The word heart is in this psalm uh, six times. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Ever been there? I don't, I don't think you're, perf you're any more perfect than I am. Our feet can't come close to slipping. For I was envious of the arrogant. Here's how his feet steps almost slip. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. 
They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongues, tongue parades through the earth. Setting their mouth, that reminds me of secular humanism. Uh, who, who needs God? We don't need God. We don't need a Savior. We can save ourselves. Their tongue is just set against the heavens, parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They're, they say, how does God know? Where is your God anyway? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I didn't ask for this. If I had said, I will... Now, that's the end of the first part, 1 to 14. This is in two parts, 1 to 14 and then 15 to 28. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome to my, in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. I saw the truth. Surely... You have set them in slippery places. This reminds me of Jonathan Edwards' song, uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In due time, their foot will slip. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. Pew, they're gone. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you, saying it's vain to serve the Lord. Nevertheless, key word, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The nearness of God is my good. He comes full circle. To the, back to verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. So we're going to be looking at this uh, psalm in various ways, following Mr. Lloyd-Jones' uh, outline or his sermons on this. He's got about... I think 11. We're going to be doubling up a few times coming up here. But uh, let's just look at this. Do I have, I got it up there. Surely God is good to Israel. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Psalms and about God's people there in the Old Testament. We're the same as, same God. They're no different than we are. 
We all struggle. We all have troubles. We all have the same kind of experiences. We all get beaten and battered by the wind of discouragement and the waves of sorrow and so on. And when we do, we turn to the Psalms. The Psalms are so important. All of them. And there's so many that express exactly what people go through. Here's how Spurgeon put it. Uh, some, I, I have a book called, um, what's it called? Um, well, I can't remember the name of the title of it, but it's about being, being, being pushed against the rock. Uh, but Spurgeon is supposed to have said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The reality is he probably didn't exactly say that, but he for sure said this because it's in one of his sermons. The wave of temptation may even wash you higher up upon the rock of ages. You can see where that comes together there. So that you cling to it with a firmer grip than you ever have ever done before. Just like this man, Asaph, who has written this psalm as he ends up there grasping God. And God is indeed his good. And so again, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So the Psalms present human experience in all of its different aspects. There's nothing that you and I go through from dark, dark depression to despair to loneliness and so on that is not expressed in the Psalms. Uh, just for an example, look back at Psalm 43. This is a, this is a Psalm that or no, I'm sorry, 42, Psalm 42. Uh, here, is, here is something that f you and I can easily fall into, verse 5 of Psalm 42. Why are you in despair, O my soul? You ever feel that way? Why are you in despair? Why have you become so disturbed, anxious, worried, despair? And it both this psalm and the next one always come back to hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his pres uh, presence. But he goes on. It's not, it's not automatic. Oh, God. Oh, my God. My soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you. And so on. Psalm 42, 5. The psalms often talk of the day of trouble. When trouble comes, like it did to this man Asaph. By the way, Asaph, several psalms are written by this man Asaph or others whose names were Asaph. He was under David, a, like a choir director kind of person. So we don't know a whole lot more about him. But the psalms often talk about the day of trouble. And you know what? We never know when the day of trouble will come. Here's just some examples. Psalm 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Here's another one. Psalm 27, 5. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. Psalm 41, 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. Psalm 50, 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. In the day of my trouble, Psalm 77, 2, I sought the Lord. In the night, 
My hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. The day of my trouble. Psalm 86, 7. In the day of my trouble, I'll call upon you. Name in 1, 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Zephaniah 1, 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress. That's talking about future judgment. And I like Matthew 6. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough what? Trouble of its own. Say, well, I'm not in any trouble. Well, good for you. Enjoy it while you have it, because the day of trouble will come. Um, Psalm 38 talks about a man bent over in paralyzing discouragement. Psalm 38. I want to share with you um, a man whose day of trouble came. And we all know him. His name is Paul David Tripp. We all enjoy his books. And uh, he just had a book published in September. It's called Suffering. Maybe you read about it. Maybe you, does anybody have the book already? Okay, it's probably a good book to get. But uh, I, th I thought, man, here's a man who the day of trouble came. And you never know. Guess what? You're walking around in a body. You never know how that body's going to treat you. You don't have ultimate control over your body. But I'm just going to read a few highlights from, I think it's the second chapter here, just to give you a feel for, man, what's it like to be hit by a day of trouble? October 19th, 2014, which is four years ago, almost to the day, is a day I will never forget because it's the day my life changed. It was unexpected and unwanted, out of the blue and out of my control. I was away on a ministry trip and began to have some minor symptoms but they were sufficiently minimal that I had no hint of what was about to come. He called a physician, said, yeah, you ought to go, see a, go to the doctor when you get back in town, get checked out. Next day was Sunday. We checked into the emergency room at Jefferson Hospital knowing we would be in for a long wait and settled in to watch the Philadelphia Eagle. Did he actually say that? Well, you did that on purpose. No, it's right there. Finally, I was called back and asked to describe my symptoms. He's in the hospital now. While my vitals were being taken. It wasn't long before there were four physicians from different departments in the little emergency room. I asked what was going on, but never got a direct answer. Before long, and I'm skipping here throughout all this, before long, I was admitted for what would become a 10-day stay. Almost immediately after arriving in my hospital room, I went into a full-body spasm. I'll never be able to adequately, adequately describe it to you. This was pain like I never knew existed. And during the spasms, the pain was focused on my groin area where it felt as if someone had stuck me with a knife. The spasms came with ferocity every two or three minutes. And when they came, I screamed. I screamed for 36 hours. <clears throat> and as I screamed, I couldn't understand why someone in the hospital didn't help me. I couldn't grasp why they didn't do something to relieve my pain. One nurse told me not to let my body tense up when the spasms came because that made them worse. She might as well have told me to jump over the moon. When the spasms came, I lost all ability to control my physical responses. After a particularly horrible and longer than usual spasm in tears, I looked at Luella and told her I wanted to die. I just wanted the torture to stop. It seemed impossible that someone couldn't do something to help me with my pain. Going down a 
couple paragraphs. What I thought would be a checkup became a 10-day hospital stay. How had I gotten so sick so quickly? What was wrong and how would it be fixed? Was I in the right medical hands? How long would I be in the hospital? Would all of this alter my life? What impact would it have in my ministry? What would it mean for Luella and my children, his wife? What in the world was God doing? These were some of the questions that rattled around in my brain as I lay in that bed, bleeding into a bag. About the third day in, the kidney doctor who had been assigned to my case came in and informed me that my kidneys had been significantly damaged. I was a very sick man with a very serious diagnosis that would forever change my life. When they finally released me from the hospital, I was still a very sick man. I left the hospital with a catheter and a bag strapped to my leg. The apparatus made it uncomfortable to sit, sleep, or walk. When I saw my kidney doctor, I was told that I had lost 65% of my kidney function and that the damage could not be reversed. Soon after, I was informed that I needed a rather major surgery. I held on to God's promises even in the middle of the disappointment and confusion, but it was very discouraging. I did grapple with the seeming irrationality of it all. How did it make sense that at the moment of my greatest ministry influence, I would be rendered weaker than I had ever been? My sickness redefined who I thought I was and what I thought of my walk with God. Let me explain. During these months, I was confronted with the reality that much of what I thought was faith in Christ was actually confidence in my physical condition and pride in my ability to produce. Suffering has the power to expose what you have been trusting all along. If you lose your hope when your physical body fails, maybe your hope wasn't really in your Savior after all. It was humbling to confess that what I thought was faith was actually self-reliance. Well, he goes on and talks about, I kept needing surgery after surgery until I had sustained six surgeries in two years. My sixth surgery was the biggest and most difficult yet. My, Spurgeon had, my, Spurgeon, my surgeon had avoided doing this surgery because it was so invasive and painful and would be followed by a lengthy and difficult recovery period. I still don't know what I am facing physically. I've been left a physically damaged man. I will never again be able to do ministry the way I had done it for years. I will never again have the energy I once had. We've had to ask hard questions that we never thought we would need to ask. We've had to confess our dependency on God in deeper ways than we had ever confessed it before, and we've had to thank God for a new normal that we would have, to, that we would have never chosen for ourselves. That is quite an experience. Did he ever say what he his kidneys, his kidneys failed him. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't want that. Do you want that? No. I don't want it either. But now, the psalmist, uh, you know, Paul David Tripp, I mean, he has spoken all over the world and, like, he's the, he's the man. And yet there he is in one day, boom, he's in the hospital. Six surgeries. The psalmists are remarkably honest and don't hesitate to tell the truth about ourselves. As this man says, my feet came close to stumbling. Here's the thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, and I'll quote him, Nothing is more discouraging than to meet people always on the mountaintop. That 
no problems, everything's great, always. No. Nothing's more discouraging than to meet people always on the mountaintop. These people know what it's like. These, people, these psalmists, they know what it's like to be cast down, overwhelmed, hurting, attacked, rejected. So the psalmist tells the truth about himself, not just to talk about himself, but to glorify God because he ends up at the right place. God is. The nearness of God is my good. So uh, let's go back to that, that psalm there. Surely God is good to Israel. Here's the psalmist. And oftentimes the psalms start out with this burst of praise. They get God out there, right? Surely God is good to Israel. He is good. Surely he's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's always good. He's always good to Israel and to us every day in every way. Then he tells us how he went astray. But as for me, my foot came close to stumbling. My foot almost slipped. He concluded with how he came back then to God. Now, what's the problem with this man? This man's problem is he doesn't understand God's way with him. He had devoted his life to serving God. If you look down, where was that? Uh, Psalm 73, down at verse 13. Look, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I've been living for you, God. Why am I hurting and these people are doing so well? In vain I have kept my heart pure. He looked at the ungodly, how they prospered. In verses 3 to 14, verses 3 to 14, and this is obviously poetic, the fatness. I don't think we should think in terms of these huge people with bulging eyes. They're so fat, you know, they're just... Blah. But they're fat in their healthiness. They're just healthy. They never have any trouble. You know, they're, and they're rich. You know, they just, they get, I mean, they're millionaires. These people are, they, they don't have any problem uh, living here on, they even, they even go, to, go to the grave happy. They go to the grave happy. They just, well, it's time to check out. Boom, I'm out of here. They have no idea what's on the other side of the grave. But that's the way the world is. And they feel sorry for people like us who trust in God. You poor people, you poor Christians. I mean, you have this imagination of this God that you think loves you, but really, you know, that's what atheists think. That's what skeptics think. Feeling sorry for us. They say, why don't you just relax, be your own person, be whomever you want. Is it really worth it the way you're living your life for God? Look at us. We're doing great. We're not trusting in your, your God. So his problem is how to reconcile God's loving care for his people and yet how he was suffering and then the ungodly were prospering. And, of course, that's a huge mistake. You should never compare yourself. You know, I mean, we're talking about the, the girl who made the wrong decision back there. What was the name of that book? Uh, she Got the Wrong Guy. You know, I mean, it's possible for, for a young lady to jump into a marriage and then things don't go well and then she starts envying other women whose marriages seem to be going well you know and it, be careful about comparing that's a bad thing huge mistake young people do that i think more than those of us who have lived for a while so here are the five lessons 
Okay, I think we already talked about that, his problem, how to reconcile God's loving care for people, yet how he was suffering uh, and the ungodly were prospering. So we've got five lessons that we're going to go through here, talk about from, from this psalm, uh, or principles that come out of this psalm. First of all, perplexity. He's perplexed. He's perplexed. Perplexity in the light of this kind of situation is not surprising. It's not surprising to be perplexed as to, man, what is going on in my life? Where is God? Does he even care? Does he even think about me? Does he care about me? Not surprising. God's purposes and ways are not our ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, his ways are so infinitely above us that we must always start by being prepared not to understand immediately anything he does. He often does the exact opposite than what we think he would do. Does that make sense? You ever been, any thoughts on that? You ever been perplexed as to what happened in your life and go, no? Perplexity. It's not surprising. Second, to be perplexed about God's ways is not sinful. It's not sinful. 2 Corinthians 4.8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. Perplexed, but not despairing. We're down, but we're not out, is basically what he's saying. That's, Wayne Mack has a book, Down, But Not Out. We are finite, limited. We don't know what is best. We don't have the big picture. Paul Tripp has another book called Forever. And he talks about how we get eternity amnesia. We forget that eternity is just, just up ahead. And all we're looking at is right here, right now. And we need to keep the big picture in mind. To be perplexed about God's ways are, is not sinful in itself, Paul was perplexed. You and I might be perplexed. Why is God doing this? Why, Paul, Tripp, why is this happening to me? Number three, to be perplexed opens the door to temptation. Opens the door. This guy fell into envy, and he almost denied the Lord, but he, he was envious. To be perplexed opens the door to temptation. You begin to have a different view of God when things aren't going the way you wish they would be. You have a different view of God. You begin to look at God with a sort of a squinty eye, with suspicion. Because this believer's foot had almost slipped. My steps had almost slipped. Temptation can shake the strongest saint. It can sweep in like a hurricane. And these temptations can come in various ways, right? Envy in this guy's case. Lust. Jealousy. Somebody's doing better than you are. And man, that temptation can just pound away at your heart. And man, when, when that happens, you need to do what the Bible teaches us to do. And I've had to do it many times when there is that temptation either toward envy 
or toward whatever the various um, things, sins are that we're tempted to do, we need to cry out to God immediately. Lord, help me right here. I need your help right now to handle this. Don't let me develop a bad attitude right here. Even though things aren't going very nicely for me, help me to keep my heart set on you. Temptate to be perplexed opens the door to temptation. Satan wants to destroy us. We know that. And by the way, what does Ephesians 6 tell us to do? Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. That's not just talk. That's not just, you know, fairy tales. He wants to hurt us. He wants us to get an attitude toward God because something's not going the way I wished it would. Somebody said something. I didn't like it. It offended me pretty soon. I'm not even coming to church anymore. I'm, I don't even want to see people. I, let me alone. I'm on my own. You know, that happens. That happens way more than we might think. Lesson number four is... Temptation has a blinding effect. That's how temptation works. It blinds us toward a pure view of God. In verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And uh, I've, trans I've um, paraphrased that. It's like he's saying, I am ashamed to admit it. I'm ashamed to admit it here, folks. But I was... But I who am so blessed by God, knowing that God is good, I who am so blessed by God fell into the snare of being envious of other people, in this case of the wicked. Satan tempts us to question the value of our desires to please God. Why is a loving God Treating me like this, dealing with me like this, the case seems unanswerable. You're suffering and the ungodly are prosperous. And temptation has that, you know, in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Satan came and began to tempt Eve, she hadn't sinned yet. But as soon as he pointed out that tree, guess where her thoughts were? That's all she could see. That tree, she wasn't looking around at other trees. She was looking at that tree. Temptation has a way of blinding us. I, I think of a, a mouse and the cheese on the trap. When he whips, man, there's some good stuff right there. All he sees is that cheese. That is going to be really good. Whap. Blackness. To be tempted is not sin, but it's, it's blinding, and we have to watch it. Satan hurls his fiery darts, suggesting evil thoughts like he did to Christ. You know, if you're God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You're hungry. Eat. Now, Christ knew how to handle it. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to a man named Billy Bray. Billy Bray was a Cornish preacher. I guess that's Cornwall. I don't know. Over in England somewhere. Cornish preacher. But I think Martin Luther said the same thing. He said, you cannot prevent the crow from flying over your head. Let's see if I've got this. There we are. You can't prevent a murder of crows from flying around your head, or even one. You, you can't prevent it from flying around your head, 
but you can prevent it from building a what? Nest in your hair. See, there you are. You've let him come down, and he's already laid his eggs, and now you're a sucker for his... Ungodly thoughts may come, but what do you do with them? That's the thing. What do you do with them? Frust uh, perplexity is not sin. Perplexity opens the door to temptation. Temptation has a blinding effect. But now what are you going to do with it when it comes? How are you going to handle it? As long as we're fighting, can we go back? Yeah, as long as we're fighting those temptations, we're fighting them. We're not welcoming them. That's where it gets to be a problem. Man meets woman. There's some relationship going on there that's not good. What's happening in the heart now? Are we fighting it or are we playing footsies with it? That's the difference. If we're playing footsies with it, the power of sin is too big for us and it's too easy for that, that sin to, to land in our head. Do you fight them or do you welcome them? Lesson number five, we must know how to deal with temptation when it comes. This means that we arrive at the right conclusion. This psalm is one psalm, and we're going to be going through it in different ways, pulling out um, different aspects of it. But surely God is good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart. But I... I envied the wicked. I struggled. How did I get out of this? I went into the sanctuary and I worked through this and I ended up where I started. The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God. When temptations fight against you, can you say, can you say, and I'm asking you this this morning, can you say that God, that surely, Without a doubt, God is good to his people. Always good. God is always good. He's always good in, in every way. In every way, he is good. All circumstances, all the time. Or would someone, do I have, oh, I have it up there. I was going to ask for somebody to quote it. Okay. All things work together for good to those who love God. But notice, though, back in, uh, where are we here? Okay, back in verse 1, it says, to those who are pure in heart. So we have to be careful here. If you're fooling around with sin, then God's going to be chastening you. And uh, kind of that's what's going on here. God is chastening you, and you need to repent of that. God will chasten us, and there's reason for our hard times. But sometimes you're not. Paul Tripp, as far as we know, now... We don't know what's going on in people's lives. And we can either say, oh, the guy was a perfect man. Well, no, he wasn't. He'd be the first to admit it. Did he deserve it? We don't know. Do I deserve it? Yeah. Good point. His own self-sufficiency, right? Yeah. And this kind of knocked him. I've thought about you, Dan. That neuropathy? Man, I, I mean, how soon did that hit Dan Jost? I thought it Huh? Pretty immediate. I'll tell you what, our brother Dan Jost, 
I don't know. He was really sick. About a year. Yeah. Did I say that? Yes. How did I? Oh, the doctor said that. Okay, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, man, I'll tell you what. Uh, we could go on for the whole time of all the issues that we've been through, different ones of you and me. I think it, Brother Tom back there. Oh, my goodness. Yep. That saw just wiped off two of his fingers. Every time I think about that, it, I cringe. I think, oh, how did he handle that? Oh, my goodness. And then I think of Debbie. And Debbie's, what was that called? Yeah, that thing. Burning that nerve out. The intense agony, right? You were probably jumping around like Paul Tripp was. Burning that nerve out of her jaw. Oh, my goodness. Would it work? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones ends this chapter with this. And this really fits in with Paul Tripp's and what you're pointing out, Dan, that he did learn something from it, that he was trusting kind of in his own abilities. Because he is a, I guess you'd call that a type A personality. I mean, vroom, 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 vroom. he's just, if you've ever seen him preach or speak, he's just like, well, the essence of the Christian life is to realize two things. I must have absolute confidence in God, really, and no confidence in myself. This means we're always looking to God. We're always looking to Christ, who is our sufficiency. I think I quoted, did I quote? Yeah, Philippians 3.3. 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's not easy because we are sinners. But that's a goal, to stop trusting in ourselves and put our confidence in It's not going to keep us from being tried. It's not going to keep us from going through experiences like this man went through, like Tripp's going through, still going through. And like so many, we've all gone through these things. Don't envy the wicked. That's where we're going to end up here. Bottom line. Yeah, bottom line. Beware of thinking God is not good when things go bad. Beware of thinking God is not good when things go bad. And lost people are having a blast. They have no idea what's down the road. I feel sorry for people like that. No idea that when they die, that's it. Don't ever envy the wicked. And the fact that the Bible talks about it quite a bit, like here's an example of a man who did. And we're told in, uh, whoops, I guess I didn't put, do I have the verses in the handout? Proverbs 24, 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Don't envy lost people. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. And then the second one is in Psalm 37, 1 to 3. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. And end up always with this. 
Okay? By the way, you should memorize some of those last verses in Psalm 73. Memorize some of those. But always end up with this. The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. Whatever else is going on, I'm struggling, I'm fighting temptation. God's nearness is my good. I'm trusting in Christ. I'm near to him. He's near to me. The nearness of God is my good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Psalms. Thank you that, Lord, we're in the flesh. We're in bodies. We have temptations, whether it be envying possessions or people or accomplishments or whatever they might be or whatever these temptations can be. And sometimes we envy people. We envy people who don't, aren't going through the things we're going through or have it better. Have it better. We have it so good, though. We're thankful for that. Lord, help us to worship you with the knowledge that your nearness is our good. You're going to counsel us, and you're going to receive us to glory. And that is where we need to be. Thank you for this psalm. In your name I pray. Amen.